The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Jesus, you yourself said, speaking to your disciples, that they didn't choose you, but you chose them that they would go and bear fruit. Lord, we thank you for that fact. It is humbling and it is hard to comprehend. But we, dead in sin, were made alive by you. We worship you for that. We give you thanks for that. And somehow it it fundamentally puts us in our place as dependent receivers of life and of eternal life and indeed of absolutely everything from your hand, all a gift of your grace to us. And as we open up that topic a little bit this morning and look at what it teaches us about pride and what it teaches us about humility before you, Lord, I pray that you would send your spirit to run through the room here and teach us. To deal with, in particular ways, each individual person here of all different ages, both genders, many backgrounds, cultural backgrounds. We bring different things to this place this morning. And I pray, Father, by your Spirit's power, would you address us each Some here don't know you. Would you awaken them? Most here do. You stir us and call us and and comfort and perhaps convict. Would you change us and soften us and would you make us a different church? Deal with us from your word. Reign us in and forbid us from going beyond it. Make us a people submitted to it for for our good and for your glory. So, Father, I pray that you would speak now. You would use the words that, I, that I'm going to say and that you would direct them and make them useful. And I pray that your spirit would inhabit the space between my mouth and your people's ears here and that you would speak in the middle. Your word would go forth and that it would have effect, it would change and it would grow and it would produce life. We believe you to do that, and we believe you to do it now. So birth and grow by your word, we ask you, Father, Son, and Spirit, for the the good of your church and for the glory of your Son. In his name I pray, amen. In an insightful chapter in his famous book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, It was through pride that the devil became the devil. You ever thought of it like that? It was through pride that the devil became the devil. He used to be a high and exalted and glorious angel. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind, says Lewis. And then later he adds, It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and in every family since the world began. Pride always means enmity, that is, hostility, animosity, conflict. Pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. And then Lewis concludes that chapter by writing, last sentence of the chapter, If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. (laughs) Typical Lewis. To get us. He's right. Pride is real. Pride lives in all of us, and it is destructive. 
Think about why that is. Pride creates hostility and destruction whenever it rains in the heart because I, I, I'm a me, I have to act. And when pride is reigning over me, I act and I think and I speak so as to lift up me. And that lifting up of me always comes at your expense. Pride is not content that we all do well. Pride wants me to do well. And that's always in comparison to you. And so pride creates a climbing of a hill. And as I'm climbing, I'm stepping on you and I'm pushing you down. Enmity. Maybe there's pride in the climbing. Maybe there's pride in resting on top as my foot rests on you. Or maybe there's pride in you right now as you're subtly thankful that's not you. It's all beneath you. Pride is reality in all of us. And it is destructive. So let's talk about it. Or rather than pride, I could use the words from our passage. Arrogance. Boasting. Puffed up, some of our translations might put it. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 and 7, use those words. And then 14 and following, use them twice more. This is an issue that Paul's facing in Corinth. He addresses it repeatedly. So we're going to look at it again this morning. And, and you'll notice that if you heard last week, I'm taking a bit of a step backwards to go back to verses 6 and 7. Last week we looked at chapter 4, verses 6 through 13 to catch the whole big flow. And I emphasize particularly the larger paragraph, if you're looking at your text, the larger paragraph of 8 to 13. And Paul's call in it to us to live lives crucified, to live lives of dying to ourselves. Well, problem behind that is pride that doesn't want to die to yourself and that's where this all comes from and that's what he emphasizes in six and seven i thought as as i consider this i thought i need to go back to that to catch a little more there and underline that just a little bit more so we're moving back a little bit to to look at pride and as we do so realize that pride manifests itself in a bunch of different ways when i use a word like pride it's it sometimes perhaps seems more fitting to use very strong and confrontational sort of language to, to attack pride or arrogance. Those are hard words and we think of chest thumping. And but, but pride can also be just really quiet, very subtle, silent even. Because the root issue is an inside issue that thinks me... Supreme. And in different settings, that may come out as conflict. It always is going to go there. But it may be resting in total silence, running rampant inside. So pride can look really strong and hard or very quiet and gentle. The issue is a heart that's set on me above you and above God. The law is summed up, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and your strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And pride is the opposite of that. Love me. So we need to talk about this. Paul's faced it a lot in, in, in this letter in Corinth. It's, we, we've seen, if you've been here in past weeks and months, we've seen that the issue so far that he's been facing and is kind of drawing to to one kind of close of this issue is the issue of division and, and discord, we might say, enmity in the church in Corinth. Factions, people divided against each other in conflict, particularly over this issue of leaders and who they would follow and who, who seemed best in their own eyes. She's been addressing that. And along the way, we've also seen him emphasize that the problem behind that division is one of forgetting the gospel. Moving on from it, moving on from the gospel, causing this conflict. Hold on a second. Didn't I just quote Lewis saying that what causes the conflict is pride? Which is it? Moving on from the gospel or pride that causes conflict? Yes. Moving on from the gospel leads you to pride. Moving on from a gospel that is all about the grace of God and what He has done and given to us. Moving on from that leaves us only in the place where we are Lord over our lives, adopting our own values and own perspectives. Pride. One camp or the other. 
Either the gospel center in your mind or you live with yourself center in your mind. So my hope is this morning that as we look at verses 6 and 7, we're going to connect a couple of things here. A confrontation of our pride and another look at how the gospel rooted in life undermines pride. So that's where we're going. May God give us grace to grow in humility by trusting the gospel. So I'm going to read the passage. I'm going to read the whole thing again, 6 to 13, because it's helpful to keep in mind where he goes with this. But I'm not really going to say very much about 8 through 13 at all. I did that last week. This is going to be more about 6 and 7. But I'm going to read the whole section. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 through 13. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, sisters, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I'll read 14 also. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. 1 Corinthians 4. I'll make two observations from the passage, both related to pride, obviously. My first observation is just about the basic warning of the text. So here's the first sentence. Sum it up like this. Take care, church, take care not to walk in the destructive folly of pride. Take care not to walk in that. Be careful, watch out for it, to not live in the destructive folly of pride. The end of verse 6 points out the destructive folly. Let's work towards that. He begins by saying, I have applied these things. And the, these things that he's talking about are, are the things that he wrote from the middle of chapter 3 on, applying them to Apollos and himself. And your, your translation may say, I have figuratively applied. What he means is these figures. He's used a couple of different things. He's talked about a, a, a farmer in a field, and then he switched figures, switched images to a builder in a building, and then he switched to a steward with a treasure. And he said, I've been working through all these figures to try to to do something. I've been applying all that to Apollos and myself to, for a purpose. So he's not revisiting all that. He's just saying, here's been my goal. Here it is. I've done this for your benefit, brothers, sisters, that you may learn by us. I'm trying to teach something here. And there are two clauses, both of which begin with the word that, or perhaps you have so that. Two things. First, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written. That phrase, what is written, that's shorthand for Scripture. So it could be that he just means don't go beyond the Bible, sort of in kind of a generic way. But he's probably referring to the Scripture that he has already quoted or been referencing throughout his general argument here about not relying on the world's wisdom, and not walking in pride, that I've been using these figures for myself and Apollos to try to teach you not to go beyond the Scriptures. That's, that's the point. To not leave the Bible off to the side and move beyond out into the world's wisdom as it tells you how to live. To sift through that and find what appeals to you and then go with it. 
I've been trying to teach you something so that you won't leave this and move beyond it, but we'll hold it. It's the first clause. And in the second clause, and if that were to happen, then it would be that none of you would be puffed up, or the word translates arrogant. It's used down 14 and following a couple times. That none of you would be arrogant in favor of one against another. And, and literally, he has the word the in there. I'm not sure if it comes through in some translations. Not arrogant for the one against the other. Probably, from where the text goes, not arrogant favoring Apollos over me. This is the Apostle Paul talking to a church that has presumed to say, Thank you for your advice, Apostle Paul. Set it off to the side, moved beyond him, so we like Apollos. Why? Well, because Apollos was everything the world would want in a leader and teacher. Now, Apollos is a good godly man. Paul loves him. Clear from the Bible. The Bible also makes clear Apollos is a really gifted teacher and a very eloquent man. And in Corinth, that was gold. That was the value of the day in Corinth. We've talked about this before. The city full of teachers and philosophers and, and people who could stand in the corner or fill a hall by their oratory. And Apollos was that. Paul, not so much. As people said, well, there's an apostle, but man, he's not really all Apollos, though. Choosing him based not on the word of God, but based on the values of the culture. They favor one against the other. In their own pride, they presume to have that right. Who gave you the right to do that? Beginning of verse 7. It'd be easy to misunderstand the English there. If you have the NAS, you have a bit of an advantage in how it translates. NAS says, who regards you as superior? You're puffed up, arrogant, setting aside Paul, in favor of Apollos, who gave you the right to do that? Who regards you as superior? Put a little color into it in our modern language. Where in the world do you get off thinking you have the right to judge one of God's servants? Especially an apostle. What in the world? You're just like everybody else. You're not distinct from anybody. You're just a person. You receive from God. You don't judge in fact, what do you have that you haven't received? That's where he goes. We'll come to that in a little bit. But right there, through 6 and into the beginning of 7, he's, he's facing and, and confronting in them this issue of pride that they would presume to stand over the Word of God and to stand over an apostle of God. What gives you the right to do that? He asks them. It's... Folly on the level of a customer to bank deciding to fire the teller because he doesn't like him. What gives you the right? So, understand the problem there. He's facing a Corinth. The church there, puffed up, going beyond the scriptures in disobedience and arrogantly favoring one gifted charismatic person because they like gifted charismatic people over another who's not so gifted and charismatic. Church took the world's standards and presumed to evaluate the servants of God. And in so doing, they dismissed a minister that God had given them, intending to build them up. They set him aside, set aside God's word, set aside God's minister to their own detriment. Destructive folly. Well, Thank goodness it doesn't apply to us. I mean, we love the Bible. And we love Paul. So great. And I think, as far as I know, most of us are okay with the other ministers in the church here. So, it's good to know, I suppose, what's going on in Corinth, but this doesn't really deal with us, does it? Well... A second assessment might be revealing. Because we need to think carefully about the, the issue of pride here. True, 
I think probably for most of us, the, the very surface, the immediate issue that Paul's facing there, there's a bit of a disconnect for us because we don't deliberately fist shaking, arrogantly say, Paul, take a hike. Some of us do. Some people who call themselves Christians, whole denominations, folks, do. You can thumb through the New Testament, find stuff Paul taught, and drive down the road to a church that says, that was Paul, he was wrong. Our culture today knows better. You can find that within five minutes of this place, I'm very confident. You can find it on the internet, easily. People who set aside Paul, who do exactly this very thing, set aside the scriptures and set aside Paul overtly, because they don't like what he taught, because they've bought into the culture's values. We're not, probably most of us here are not quite on that level. We're not quite in that same place. But we need to think carefully about this. Because the issue, we, we, we can't miss this in our lives, in our, in our personal lives, or in our corporate life, because the issue there is being displayed in how they are dealing with Paul and Apollos. But it starts back there a ways with a heart attitude that says, I'm going to function by looking at my culture and deciding what I like in that and then coming to the Bible and saying, do I agree or not? It's a heart issue first that then leads them onto these things. And we have to look for that because it is in us. So don't just dismiss this. Look for it. It is in us. An easy way might be just to look right away for enmity. Where are you in discord? Where are you in conflict? Look for pride there. And we have some of that in our church. We have some of that in some of our families. We have some of that between husbands and wives and parents and kids and teachers and students. Where is there enmity and discord and conflict? Because there you have found pride. Don't walk in that. It is folly and it is destructive. We could start right there, but I want to move us to a a different place. Because I have already spoken a number of times about conflict. I want to take a a different piece of pride and and look at something that I think is an important issue for our church and one that might not right off connect with you as, oh, that's pride, clearly. So think with me into this. I think it will reveal an area in which we have adopted our culture's values because they resonate with us and feel good to us, but in so doing we have moved on beyond what is written. So let me ask you, does God command you to be your brother's keeper? Yes or no? Yes. Does God encourage us to realize how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity, in community? Yes. Does He exhort us to see ourselves as a unified body ministering to each other, to one another, in real and genuine love? A love that works in us such that we build one another up, encouraging and exhorting and comforting and challenging until together we all reach maturity. Yes or no? Yes. Realize, as I'm saying these things, I'm paraphrasing Bible verses. The answer to all these questions is yes. Did the early church model this for us, recorded in God's Word for our instruction, having everything in common, meeting together constantly to share, pray, preach, witness? Yes. What is written? There is an obvious biblical perspective which becomes a biblical mandate. That's what the church is, written, commanded, for our great good. 
And on the other hand, our modern Western individualistic society is very different. Very different. Modern Western individuals cherish private lives. Private individual rights. Personal privacy. Self-autonomy. Really, I mean it. We, we cherish that. We live there. Who you voted for, how much money you make, how you spend it, what happens in your marriage, I mean what actually happens in your marriage, behind the closed doors of your house, what you do with your personal time, none of that is anybody else's business. Unless you make an autonomous decision to self-disclose. Notice you're still the one in charge of that. To share something that you choose with someone else whom you choose, when you choose it. The whole thing reeks with pride. And is there any question that we resemble it? We shy away from responsibility for others and accountability to others. Let me just, let me just say this and, and feel how odd this sounds to us. I, I read an article one time about a, a pastor who was saying, his pastor was writing about the church in which he ministers, and he said, you know what, what we do in our church? I see all the giving records. And right away, everybody said, Really? Because I'm thinking, I don't see all the giving. I try to avoid those things. So, okay, so I'm, I'm hooked. Why? I see all the giving records. The names, the numbers. And he says, did not Jesus say there's a connection between your heart and your wallet? Not in those terms, but did he not say, follow the money, there's your heart. He said, so I'm a pastor. I'm charged to shepherd the hearts of these sheep in this flock. And I set aside one extremely clear, biblically stated indicator of where their hearts are. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to know where the money's going. I thought, hmm, that's a good point. Wouldn't fly in the Western world. Oh, he is in the Western world. Flies somewhere, I guess, in the Western world. Doesn't that, doesn't that strike you as bizarre? But then when you listen to the biblical reasoning, doesn't it sound kind of reasonable? Yeah, where my money goes shows where my heart is. And if I'm talking to a guy or talking to an elder board or shepherds who I'm going to talk to them about all my other issues in my life because I want them to help me follow after Jesus, I'm not going to talk about my money? That's private. No, I'm not saying that I'm going to go and pull all the financial records tomorrow. I haven't done that, not going to do that, but I'm trying to make a point here. We have an assumption of how this should work, that at least the Bible would ask us the question, if you're concerned about hearts, why aren't you concerned about money? That's a really good question to me. We shy away from responsibility for others and accountability to others. And I would submit to you that we have left off from following what has been written. And we have bought the values of our Western culture that is all about me and I, individual and autonomous. Unless I choose to involve myself to some degree in a group. That sounds to me like pride. We desire, sort of, biblical community, if it fits with what I'm doing. Usually we don't have time for biblical community. Because I've decided I'm, I'm somewhere else doing something else. We pursue biblical community sometimes if it's convenient. 
if I think it will meet my needs, if it's with people that I enjoy. This is wrong. This is common, this is cultural, and this is wrong. And I would submit to you that it comes from pride. Not, not the, not the fist shaking, chest beating sort of, but a very quiet, sometimes pride shows itself in conflict, but sometimes there's no conflict because we've all adopted residents on a thousand separate islands. Contrary to what has been written. What gives us the right to decide what will follow? Nothing. Nothing. Now, I am example number one of this. Because, man, I am an individual. And I am a private person. I am a, a closed, indrawn person, and I spend half of every day just wanting to go home and be by myself. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> and there is, I, I'm convinced there is room in this for different personalities. But we probably, and I, and I, I have spent some time living in foreign cultures that see things a little differently, I think that probably our Western culture has the spread of personalities over here, and the Bible's spread of personalities is at least over here. Every extrovert that I knew, and we lived in a particular foreign country, every extrovert I knew was, was like overwhelmed with how much people wanted to be around and be involved. <laughs> Can't we just be alone? <laughs> Those are the extroverts. <laughs> I had a hard time. <laughs> I, I, so I, I'm dealing with this this week. I'm thinking about these things. And, and I think that if we're going to talk about biblical community, or maybe I'll just drop that. I say, if we're going to talk about obeying the Bible, if we're going to talk about obeying the Bible, we, we have to be honest about this and say something is wrong. If I am starting as an isolated person and deciding where I, I want to get involved, it should be the other way around, that I exist in a community. All the analogies in the Bible, body, family, building, assumes, you know, the analogies are not starting with body parts, sometimes which they assemble. It's the other way around. So there has to be some, some significant change in how we think about ourselves and our place in the world. And, and I'm, I'm saying this is so much an uphill push where we live. I don't mean Salt Lake, I mean America, the Western world. But God does miracles. God is about conforming people to what He has written and conforming people to the image of His Son, who as Jed prayed, existed forever in community. God, triune, has been an eternal community. That's what His people are to be. So we must be careful. We must watch. Take care that we don't walk in the destructive folly of pride. And if it's, if it's conflicts for you, and you touch on that and be honest about that, that's in the Bible. But this other area, I think, is a big one for our church. Even when we come together, even, even when we gather on a Sunday afternoon in what we are calling gospel communities, I think sometimes we've, sometimes I think we've named them in hope. Because they are not yet thoroughly about the gospel and they are not yet community. But even when we come together in those settings, so often it, it is still just only another step beyond the chit-chat of the hallway. And when the time ends, the, the community ends, because there isn't anything beyond it. Now, I'm praying and I hope that, that we're getting beyond that and we will grow beyond that, but brothers and sisters, we must get beyond that. We are an us. We are an us. 
That's what God has written, and we must not adopt our culture's values and move beyond it. Take care that we not walk in pride. And so the second observation helps us to address that. It helps us in our fight against pride. This is a huge piece of it. There are other things. I I thought that if you were in the life training class this morning, the one another class I think will be a, a very practical help for us in thinking about this. Come to that. So I'm not talking so much at this level about practical, tangible, concrete things, though that's one that I would mention. I'm talking about at at the conceptual level what can help us in our fight against the the commitment to meism in the heart. And here's a big one, which should sound familiar. Remember the gospel of grace to grow in humility. Remember the gospel of grace to grow in humility. Now, the language that I'm using here, I mean, there's some exhortation in this, but but my language is not nearly as biting as Paul's language is in this. Last week, perhaps you even heard it a little bit in the reading, but, but last week, this language is, he's going after people who are of the proud, fish-shaking, chest-pounding variety who have tossed him out. And he said, that is, that, that's not going to fly. I'm an apostle, and God has a word for you. So he's coming at them. I'm not coming at you in that same way. Partly because I'm not an apostle, and partly because we're not exactly displaying the same kinds of stuff. But So my language is going to be a little bit different, but I think that we'll still be able to see the issue that Paul's getting at here. So, what he, is, what he is after in verse 7 is to convey to them a simple fact. You are dependent receivers. You are dependent receivers of everything. He says to them, the, the second question of verse 7, What do you have that you did not receive? The answer, nothing. Absolutely nothing. All that you have, you've received. So why on God's green earth do you boast as if you didn't? As if you actually created or caused or made or originated anything. You didn't. Nothing. Not a, not, not a, not a bit. It is God's green earth. You don't draw breath by yourself. We could, and, and, and I will very briefly mention just the very basic facts of We don't live, we don't eat, we don't move apart from the grace of God. Commonly given to every person on earth. Every single one of us lives and moves and has our being because of the gracious, giving, loving, kind nature of God. We have not made, created, caused anything. All of life is a gift from God. Which right away should establish something. We are dependent receivers of the next breath you draw. Where does boasting fit into that? Like a baby in a nursery boasting about being born. What exactly did you do about that? Everything. I mean, I know babies sometimes push with their feet a little bit, but nothing. But beyond, beyond that, the basic common grace, which is significant, but Paul has something different in mind. He's writing to a church. And so we need to narrow our focus from all of the world and all of the creation down to God's people, Christians. And he's saying to them, those who belong to, to, to God, what he has in mind is to say to them, brother or sister, what do you have that you did not receive? What spiritual pedigree, what insight, what spiritual wisdom What spiritual gift, what spiritual reality, what spiritual standing, what spiritual maturity do you have that you did not receive given? Nothing. Christian. 
It is all by the grace of God that you are anything at all. How is that? Think it through. The only thing you have that was not given to you was your sin and your resultant guilt. That alone you came by naturally. And the gracious God gave and gave and gave to you, overwhelming you in your undeserving state with boundless generosity. He gave to you His one and only Son, God the Son, come down to earth in flesh for the purpose of dying on the cross to take on Himself the curse you had earned. If, if you don't know that, that's the purpose of the cross. The purpose of the cross is it does cer- certainly show us things, but it is not primarily to show us things. It is primarily to do something. To remove off of people like us God's curse, God's wrath. He gave that. He gave the Son to be a Savior. And He gave you the convicting ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Opening your eyes to your sin. Convincing you of the reality of your sin. And the the sinfulness of your sin. The offense of your sin. So that, in other words, by, by the grace of God. Get this, by the grace of God. Sometimes conviction of sin sounds like such a hard thing that we kind of shy away from. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. So that you see actually not just, yeah, I'm a sinner, I do some wrong things, but oh my word, I stand guilty before a holy God. Only by the grace of God does the Spirit of God open your eyes. Chapter 2 makes clear, natural people apart from the Spirit don't see it like that. If you've never experienced that conviction, you're probably not a Christian. But believers, you have received that also by grace. Chapter 2 also says that He revealed the truth and the hope in Christ crucified. Because naturally the world sees that as ridiculous. Maybe an offense. But as He graciously gave to you open eyes so that you could see it to be the wisdom and the power of God that this Savior given was for your problem and it works. Oh, hallelujah! You only saw that by the grace of God. He gave you faith to embrace it. And more than that, then He gave you adoption as heirs. He didn't just leave you in benign neglect, but He made you His heirs. Heirs of an inheritance that is vast, but at the heart of it is relationship with God Almighty Himself, who was once your enemy and now is your dearest friend, your Father in Heaven. Who has given you relationship, even now the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, whose primary purpose is to communicate the presence of God with you wherever you walk and to guarantee an eternal weight of glory. Given to you by grace. What do you have that you did not receive? And having given you the Spirit along with Him, He gives you His Word, the Bible, a lamp for your feet and a light for your path. And the Spirit to make it clear to you. And then the Spirit given to you gives, pours out on you as chapter 1 verse 4 says, by grace, gifts abundant. Spiritual gifts of all sorts, not to build yourself up, but to build the church up, your family. To give and to receive the grace of God through others and to give the grace of God through you to others. What a blessing. What do you have that you did not receive? You have much, all of it given. None of it earned. None of it created. None of it originated in you. A gift. 
What do you have that you did not receive? And so why on earth would anybody boast about any of that? The only one worthy of any boasting in is the Lord who gave it, which, what do you know, is Paul's conclusion in chapter 1, verse 31. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord who has done it. And then, having given us all this spiritual reality, audaciously, the end of chapter 3 says, in fact, actually, he's given you just everything. All of life, all the present, all the future, everything that happens to you, even your death, while the world may mean it for evil, coming through the hands of God, turned by His grace, accomplishes His good purposes in your life. He has given you everything. Everything. Every circumstance is yours for your good and for your growth. We are fundamentally dependent receivers of grace from God. And Paul's point is that that status, remembered, cuts off at the knees all pride and all boasting. Which is why he brings it up here in confrontational language. But the point is, aren't you just receivers of absolutely everything? And shouldn't that shape how you think and how you live? Yes, it should. That's the point. It should shape how you think and live because as all that you have received in the gospel weighs heavy on you and rests on you, what's going on, what happens there, is that the Spirit of God, like a flashlight, starts shining around in your life, illumining things for you to see. The convictor of the folly of pride He'll convict you of the sin from turning from that God to say, thank you very much, now I will be Lord. He'll convict you of the folly of that. It will seem to you evil, and it will seem to you ridiculous. He will convict you of the folly of of receiving from this God His Word to guide you and saying, I will move beyond what is written and turn to the sin-cursed world around me and take my values and my life from them. He'll convict you of the folly of that. But the Spirit will also shine on this good and gracious Lord and draw your heart to Him, which is critical. Because... Get this here. Because in pride, there is both a great ugliness and a great fearful weakness. These two elements are at work in pride. The ugliness piece is, is the rejection of God, which I was just talking about. He has to convict us of that. The, the presumption that I now will call the shots. That's the ugliness thing in pride. In the face of the omnipotent one, I will be Lord. But the fearful weakness is there too. And the fearful weakness is the part of proud self-focus that worries that if you don't take care of yourself, you won't be taken care of. So you better tend to yourself. You see both these things in pride? Sometimes in pride there is the, I want. Sometimes there is the pride in pride, the, if I give that away, what will happen? And that's, that's a fearful weakness that, that worries that the ground you're standing on is not quite secure enough, so you better climb to another rock. And God, by His Spirit, will cut that leg of pride out of your life by lifting up in front of you a God who has secured everything for you. What do you have that you do not receive? We could say, what do you need that He will not give? Nothing. Same answer. 
The Spirit calls you and strengthens you to repent of this piece of proud fear by pouring out on you the gospel of grace with all of its past blessings of which you were simply a receiver. It points you back and says, look what you have received. And it also points you forward with all of its future promises, which you will receive from the hand of the one and only Lord of all. He was led out to die a spectacle, but he has been raised and he reigns. And he is coming. Turn away from walking in pride. Turn away from hoping in yourself. And hope in that one. Hoping in Him. Turning to Him. Cuts off pride. Cuts off... it, It makes it seem the evil and the folly that it is. And it uproots the fear that's in pride. And it draws us to Him. Die to yourself then and don't walk in the destructive folly of pride. May you be overwhelmed by the clear fact of the matter. I have nothing to be proud of, but everything, absolutely everything to rejoice in and be grateful for to the praise of His glorious grace. Think on these things, brothers and sisters, and do not walk in the destructive folly of pride. So think on them right now. Take a few minutes. Pray. We're going to start moving towards communion here. Maybe you need to consider repentance. And maybe there's a conflict you need to think about. Maybe it's the isolation you need to think about. Maybe it's fear you need to think about. Consider repentance. Consider, is God good enough to handle your life? Ask Him to convince you of that. And in a couple minutes, I'll close this in prayer and we'll move to communion. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.